Hello, you are listening to Deeply Curious. My name is Cody Jensen, and joining me in our New York City studio apartment is Sarah Jensen, my wife. Hello. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the World Happiness Report, which just which just came out, the 2019 edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and the happiness, World Happiness Report is something that's been going on uh, since 2005, or I guess more specifically, maybe a little after um, 2011, because that's whenever the actual report came out, but the first study covered 2005 to 2011. Um, And we have been given the World Happiness Report um, ever since, uh, using data being collected since 2005, I guess is what I should say. Um, But the 2019 World Happiness Report just came out. Sarah and I have both read it. Yes. Um, And it is uh, over 150 pages it's a lot of researchy words. Yes, it's, it's not very exciting to read. It's one hundred and fifty. <laughs> it's one hundred fifty pages of academic research and hypothesis of the research. Yeah. Um. So it is not a fantastical story, but it is fascinating data. Absolutely. Um. Before we jump into the report, just want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by the members over at our Jensen AV Club. That is our Patreon page. This podcast is supported by people just like you giving um, little amounts or lots of amounts, um, <laughs> whatever uh, floats your boat. Um and we have different tiers of opportunities that you can get deeper access and exclusive content. Um, this particular episode is uh, executive produced by Christian B. Schmidt. Um, and if you want to check out the Jensen AV Club and what all you can, uh, how you can support what you get through your support, you can go over to jensenav.club. Yes. The link is also in the description, or you can just go to patreon.com and search for Cody Jensen and it'll get you there as well. Yep. So jensenav.club. Thank you. All right. So jumping into the actual world happiness report. They talk a lot about in the beginnings of it, um, just to kind of get all of us on the same page um, of how they measure happiness. Right. Um, and they they use this thing, well, not completely, but one of the things they talk about a lot and one of the things that is used um, from the uh, World Gallup survey, I think that's what it's called, yeah. is this thing called the Cantrell Ladder Question. Um, and that specific question is asking respondents to value their lives today on a zero to 10 scale with the worst possible life as a zero and the best possible life as a 10. And this gives us the chance to compare happiness levels and inequality in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So um, then they, they they spend a significant chunk of time um, <laughs> basically proving the validity of their research. Yeah. Um, which if you are a skeptic and you don't, you know, uh, believe it or want to know specifically why certain, you know, all of this stuff is, you can download the World Happiness Report by going to worldhappiness.report um, and read that stuff. Um, that makes up a good chunk of the reporting because obviously they are uh, academic scientists and things like that right. wanting to show the results but also prove the results. Right. So you have to you know spend the time to do that. Once they do that, they start asking some very interesting questions mm-hmm. and then hypothesize um, or even provide uh, correlative evidence of why they think that. So I think before we, you know, get into mm-hmm. things, um, <laughs> before we get into like 
what are what interested us the most in all yes. that. I think the most interesting thing in general and the thing that people, I, I mean, what I would want to know mm-hmm. in the very beginning is uh, the actual list, the rankings yeah. uh, of the most happiest uh, countries. So the uh, list has a 156 um, countries listed. Before you read yeah. the happiness report, where would you have pictured the U.S. being? Well, this is probably unfair because I'm a little biased against America. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, so I, I would have probably ranked it lower than it actually is. Hmm. But, but not because, but that, uh, see, it just makes me sound like a terrible person, I think maybe because yeah. I just don't like America that much right now. So it's a very like personal yeah. ranking, not like if I think about it on a world scale, like it's pretty. I mean, obvious, like, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not doing too bad, you know, whatever. But on a very personal level, I probably would have ranked it lower than what it is. I I probably would have put it generally where it's probably at. Yeah. But that's because I I basically have come into this with um, a lot of prerequisite knowledge of like being very interested in this stuff. Right. Um, And so... I knew it wasn't in, even in the top 10, um, but I, I would have, you know, I don't know mm-hmm. where I exactly would have guessed it. But um, just to, we won't keep the carrot uh, dangling here. Um, the United States of America, the uh, quote unquote greatest country on earth, <laughs> according to Americans, Americans. <laughs> nationalist Americans. Um, the United States is number 19 on the list. Yeah, we made the top 20. Um, Which that- is pretty good i feel like although it does seem like well shouldn't we be like two or three you know (laughs) i mean it's like if you were to if you were to say like okay you know america you know it's like oh well we'd be like okay well i guess we could see like canada being happier yeah exactly you're like but i mean number at least in the top three yeah no no number 19 um that would be preceded by belgium germany ireland united kingdom luxembourg israel costa rica australia austria canada New Zealand, Sweden, Switzerland, getting into the top five of Netherlands, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, and the new number one, Finland. Yeah, so apparently we need to go live in Scandinavia. Yeah, which Scandinavian (laughs) countries have uh, topped the list of happiness for a very long time. I mean, they were the top of the list of the very first um, happiness report, which led to uh, a lot of debating and, um, I mean, even whenever the... Uh, like Trump election was going on with, you know, well, even in the primaries, whenever Bernie was running and, you know, because Bernie would use the data of, you know, the happiness of the Scandinavian countries to like basically uh, emphasize his, his point on democratic socialism and, you know, the, you know, uh, look at the people of Finland, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, you know, that type of stuff and, you know, see how happy they are and all that type of stuff. Um, And then obviously because it's, um, political right um, people that were on the other side you know picked it apart and you know so on and so forth um i read a book though during that time because i was very interested because bernie was very appealing to me mm-hmm. but i was also like wanted to make sure i was educated mm-hmm. um and so i read a book around that time called the almost nearly perfect people mm-hmm. um it's by michael booth and it's behind the myth of the scandinavian utopia um so it's an american guy who i believe he got married to a scandinavian woman um so he 
you know, basically was it was an American perspective of right. why the Scandinavian people are so happy. And he so he has lived many years of his life uh, in Scandinavia and he goes through every single Scandinavian country and kind of talks about the nuances and yeah. different things of, of Scandinavia um, and, you know, why the Scandinavian people may be happier or happier or may actually report right happiness higher than other countries not because they are actually happier but um because that is the culture of which they live in to um uh kind of that the tall poppy thing that um, our friend michelle was talking about in australia mm-hmm. that you don't want to stand out like there's right. no you know deviating from the cultural norm right um and so that may lead to some of this but Anyways, that, Who knows? that was a very interesting book, The Almost Nearly Perfect People. Yeah. Um, so I guess, what, what were some of your initial thoughts? On the ranking? Yeah, I mean, just in general from reading The Happiness Report. Um, well, I wasn't surprised, I guess I should say, for, but on the ranking. Like, mm-hmm. I knew Scandinavian was going to be way up there. Um, I knew that the UK was generally close to or comparable to the US, which it's four spots ahead of us which is Mm -hmm. actually i think maybe better than i thought um i'm not surprised by the majority of the top 20 being europe just saying um yeah but i i don't know that i'm like shocked either way to find out that the u.s is 19 that doesn't i mean that seems fit yeah i think that the the thing that we should all recognize and then the thing one of the things that they talk about um in the world happiness report Mm -hmm. is that uh america did not gain spots right from the last happiness report we are losing spots right i think that maybe is uh more fascinating to me is like who gained and who lost like finland won the first spot this time Mm because they're gradually increasing u.s obviously downgraded um so I highlighted this one part, but basically it says the substantial reductions in the United States um, were larger than they predicted, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was really interesting too. Yeah. And so there were um, a quite a few different, um, I guess, questions yeah. that they that they asked um, and hypothesized about why um, the right. U.S., you know, is falling right in happiness right because by all accounts we should be growing in happiness if you take in like the traditional like right our wealth is growing uh the economy is great i don't all the things you know that supposedly make a great economy in a great country are actually improving um but our happiness level as a country is falling and so there's like something in there amiss which i thought was really interesting too yeah so the you would think basically it, as you as you would traditionally measure it mm-hmm. um the uh gdp growth yes that's what the gdp that's what i was so the for. uh um basically Gross the, domestic. the money right. that everybody's making yes. um you know the as as the the country as a whole mm-hmm. the amount of money that we are all making as it goes up then our happiness should also go up right traditionally that's um, how it should go well yeah that's that's the way that um you would think yes um but then you have to take into account all of the other what was it six categories or something right it was like uh you said freedom generosity 
like social mm-hmm. uh, circles, right? Things corruption. like yeah, uh, government corruption, things like that um, that you have to take into account too. I guess that America is not doing so great. Yeah. <laughs> Here's one quote about how Americans should be happier. They said, by most accounts, Americans should be happier now more than ever. The violent crime rate is low, as is the unemployment rate. Income per capita has steadily grown over the last few decades. This is the Easterland paradox. As the standard of living improves, so should happiness, but it has not. Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the more fascinating things about this report because I mean, obviously, like I said, we only have our American perspective and experience. And so those things really stuck out to me as far as like, okay, well, why, if supposedly America's doing so good, is everyone so unhappy? Yeah. You know? There were two papers that were towards the end of the happiness report that were on social media and addiction Yeah, in, in uh, America that um, they are hypothesizing that are a driver of one of the main reasons that Americans um, are unhappy in general, um, but have also led to the sudden drop in happiness. Right. But before we get there, there were a few other things um, in in the previous papers that I I thought were interesting too, um, Mm -hmm. like the question of, are happier people more likely to be engaged with politics? Mm. Um, That was fascinating. And so uh, basically, you know, it was found that yes, um, being very satisfied, um, as opposed to not being very satisfied, um, is in association with 6.7 percentage point change in the probability of voting, um, a magnitude that rivals that of education. Um, so a 6.7 percentage point change, um, yeah. in probability of, vo- of voting whenever you're talking about a, uh, subjective well-being um, survey, of people who are, are satisfied with their life versus not satisfied with their life. Right. And along those same lines, other research has shown that in the United States, people are uh, people who are depressed are less likely to vote. Right. And then uh, in, in, in later in that paper, it also asks the question of uh, are happier people more likely to vote for incumbents? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the conclusion of that. And then, are unhappier people more likely to vote for populist? So this was yeah. really interesting. Yes. So, I mean, it says there's no single definition of populism making its measurement and empirical study problematic, but perhaps the key aspect of a populist ideology, which spans various different definitions, is anti-establishment worldview. Anti- okay. Yeah. So populist politicians typically distinguish between the virtue of ordinary people on one hand and the corrupt elite on the other hand. So related themes in the study of the recent rise in populism have also included a growth in the success of parties promoting uh, nativist and nationalist sentiment, as well as uh, the opposition or rejection of cosmopolitan or globalization, which mm-hmm. is you know, very much Trump. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, the, the Trump's America is very much uh, against, um, is is very nativist and nationalist and, and against, you know, ob- yeah. cons- cosmopolitanism, which would be uh, immigration and right. you know, all of that. And they're saying the unhappier you are, the more likely you are to go to Vote for populist. Yeah, so okay. they, they go into kind of like questioning, is it unhappiness that is causing the rise of populist Right. Political parties, 
Or is it the alternative um, that an explanation that it may be that the current rise in populism is best explained by demand side factors, but rather on the supply side of populist politics? So if this is the case, one important and interesting line of research may attempt to study the extent to which populist politicians have successfully developed ways of appealing to and tapping into the existing well of unhappy people. Right. Um, So all meaning... Is it that unhappy people are calling for populist governments right. or that uh, populist leaders are coming in and tapping into the unhappiness of the people? Right. So I thought that was an interesting question. Yeah. Um, they did that again um, on a different chapter about um, volunteering and how um, happiness correlates with volunteerism and like giving your time away. Mm-hmm. Um, but they said there it can't be uh, – there's no like – I don't know, guess strong evidence on like volunteering makes you happier versus just naturally happier people people tend to volunteer. Yeah. You know, um, it can be or is possible that it's either or, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting to even look at too. So they concluded that um, particular question with the final possibility could be that it is not the average level of well-being that is driving changes in support for populist political movements, but it rather has to do with the variance of subjective well-being. So well-being inequality. Um, yeah. So it may be that it's not that unha- it's, it's not the amount of unhappy people that are causing the rise in populist um, governments mm-hmm. or that populist governments are tapping into unhappy people, that the actual rise is caused by well-being inequality. So just the larger the divide. Right. In the amount of people who say that they're happy and the people that say they're not happy within the same country lead to a more, you know, populist um, government. Yeah. It's, it's basically income inequality, just like in general, like that's a massive mm-hmm. in the United States. Like, right. Know, I mean, income inequality is insane. Um, and so it's kind of the same thing with um, well-being inequality. Yeah. Which is really interesting because I think you don't ever hear about that kind of inequality. I mean, it's obvious if you have an income inequality, the people with lower income will have less means to have well-being, like their health care will be more difficult, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. It makes sense, but I only ever hear people talk about income inequality and not about well-being and happiness inequality, which is, I think, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I really... uh that was some interesting evidence um, mm-hmm. to me. Um, and then in the next paper is what you brought up is talking about um, uh, give like charity. Um, yeah. So giving of your time and giving of your money. Yeah. Which I, I thought the giving of your time, it was fascinating just that they couldn't, there is no conclusive evidence either way, mm-hmm. um, which is fascinating. But then also, specifically the giving of your money there was i guess correlating evidence i don't know if it was yeah proven but um that spending money on people rather than yourself actually does prove happier um like the people who were assigned to spend money on somebody else and then the people who were assigned to spend money on themselves the people who spent money on someone else reported higher levels of happiness at the end of the day yeah um which I thought was really cool. Um, obviously, there's different factors to it. It's like who you're spending your money on. So like if you know them 
or not, Mm -hmm. if you can see the result of your money being spent and stuff like that uh, adds to the happiness level. But I thought that was a really cool um, thing that they found because I don't think, I mean, we're not really taught to be generous people, especially with our money. And so I like that they researched that. Yeah. So whenever you're talking about giving of your time and giving of your money, why do you think that people re, uh, find higher levels of happiness whenever giving of their money? I think it's probably more tangible. I mean, we are a culture who values money very much so and like can see the results of money more easily than I think, you know, going and volunteering for an hour a week or whatever. You can't really see the results of that. Whereas if you give physical money and get to see the result of it, that that is more enticing. I mean, mm-hmm. what kind of person doesn't want to like experience that, I guess? Um, I think probably like it's something that our culture really values. So it would make sense that we would get more fulfillment out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like everything's kind of heightened. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking that the uh, sentiment of mm-hmm. show me where you spend your money and I'll yeah. show you where your heart is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think even in like music and culture in that sense a lot of people talk about how money really is the root of all evil Mm -hmm. um because once you once you get a lot of it you understand that it's not going to do anything for you obviously past the hierarchy of needs but it really does like corrupt a lot of things right and i think that you know there's things in scripture that you know say it's easier for a camel to pass through the the eye of a needle needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of god and you know you know all theology aside it's it's just a parable of it is very difficult to maintain a humble attitude yeah. um with a ton of money right um because money it just like it's so easy to become a greedy person mm-hmm. and um i think that whenever we allow ourselves to part with our money for no monetary gain um so not in the exchange of goods right um it's just in in giving away um something that we uh you know earned worked hard for whatever you want to say the biggest idol in our western context is money Mm -hmm. and to sacrifice a piece of that uh, for the well-being of others i think that that leads more to the um the feeling of having done good i.e happiness right um than the giving of time because time is not valued in our culture in the same way that money is valued. Right. That's what I was saying. Like money is a much more important commodity, I think, to us than time, which is weird, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes sense, I guess. So then the next yeah. paper yes. is the sad state of happiness in the United States and the role of digital media. Such a sad title. Yeah. <laughs> So that starts, the years since 2010 have not been good ones for happiness and well-being among Americans. (laughs) Even as the United States economy improved after the end of the Great Recession in 2009, happiness among adults did not rebound to the higher levels of the 1990s, continuing a slow decline ongoing since at least 2000. Yeah. And we've talked about this a little bit in previous podcasts about the correlations between digital and social media 
and like the younger generation, the yeah. new generation, um, and how anxiety and depression and suicide rates and everything is like so much higher. Um, and I mean, that's all this whole chapter is about. Um, but I thought what was interesting is they were talking about how a lot of it might be due to the fact that like we're just spending our time differently. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily, well, or maybe it is social media, but it's not necessarily social media. It's the fact that social media is taking six hours of our day when we used to do other activities activities and projects that, that contributed. contributed to happiness. Yeah, so it's not necessarily, I thought that was really fascinating that that it's not like, oh, social media is bad, but it's more like, well, it's taking away from activities that are actually that actually do contribute to happiness. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating. At least that's one that that is one avenue you could take, like one hypothesis of the data. Right, that it's you could all take. correlating. Yeah, because it, yeah. it's like I feel like the conclusion at the end is that it's a both and. Totally, I just like that they yeah, yeah. that they threw that out there because I do think that's another something that nobody's talking about. We're all talking about like, okay, what's the deal with social media? Is it a problem? Is it good? Is it bad? It has, you know, positive qualities, but also some really negative ones. And I think just saying like, like just looking at it like, okay, it, obviously there's positive qualities, but it's taking away time that we used to devote to activities that actually contribute to happiness. That mm -hmm. is like proven to contribute to happiness. Social media is taking that. Um, I thought that's just, I like looking at it like that for me on a personal level. Yeah. Instead of just like, oh, I should cut out all social media being like, oh, I should implement these new activities. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, there are numerous indicators of low psychological well-being, such as depression, suicide, self-harm, um, mm -hmm. and uh, or I guess self-harm increased sharply among adolescents since 2010, particularly among girls and young women. Yeah. Um, and it goes on to say that those in... Um, iGen born before born after 1995 are markedly lower in psychological well-being than millennials born 1980 to 94 were at where they were at the same age. So uh, right the, the the teen age mm -hmm. um, it, it's that the uh, iGen are markedly lower in psychological well-being. Yeah, I think this section. <laughs> I just love the title of it, but it says the rise of digital media and the fall of everything else. Yes. <laughs> um, but in this section, they talk about uh, over the last decade, the amount of time that adolescents spend on screen activities um, has steadily increased, accelerating after 2012, after the majority of Americans owned smartphones. Um, by 2017, the average 12th grader spent more than six hours a day of leisure time on just three digital media activities, internet, social media, and texting, um, which I thought was six hours a day. Yeah. That is so much. But um, what I thought was actually interesting, they said other activities that typically do not involve screens have also declined. Adolescents spent less time attending religious services, less time reading books and magazines, and uh, perhaps most crucially, less time sleeping. Um, they're not, these declines are not due to time spent on homework, which has actually declined, which I thought was interesting, mm -hmm. or stayed the same, or time spent on extracurricular activities. Um, the only activity adolescents have spent significantly more time on during the last decade is digital media. So even though it's only correlating evidence it seems pretty obvious yeah. to me you know that it really is having a massive effect on 
our mental well-being. Mm -hmm. Because the amount of time that kids spend online uh, increased at the same time that sleep and in-person social interaction declined. Right. Um, so that is in tandem with a decline in general happiness. Yeah. So if you look at the graph, um, if you download the report, the graph is on page 91. Um, and it is a uh, very interesting um it, it like it's the it's one, it's probably one of the only graphs in the whole report that i just stared at and kind of just shook my head like <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. so it's a line graph going from 2006 to 2017 um with the uh amount of internet hours sleep in person in person social interaction and happiness as mm -hmm. all different factors and as Internet hours uh, goes like significantly up at yeah. the exact same time. Sleep goes down in personal in person social interaction goes down and happiness tanks with it. Yeah, it says that sleeping face to face social interaction and attending religious services, less frequent activities among iGen teens are instead linked to more happiness. But all four of them, happiness, <laughs> sleep, in person social interaction. All of it has decreased with the correlation of internet hours. So just one sad piece of evidence is yeah. uh, girls spending five or more hours a day on social media are three times more likely to, to be depressed than non-users. And heavy internet users versus light users are twice as likely to be unhappy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so as like adolescents spend more time on electronic devices and are less happy. Um, and adolescents who spend more time um, on other activities are happier. Mm -hmm. I guess the question would be this study, you know, this data is a, is on Gen Z because of the data available. It's much easier to study them. Right. Yes. Adult brains are more developed in the prefrontal cortex and, you know, all that right. type of stuff. But at the I same time, the same. it's the same. I think it's the same. I think that by far, well, definitely millennials. I mean, we're practically in the same uh, spot as Gen Z, except that we didn't have social media starting when we were in junior high, but starting in high school instead. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, that is a difference, but still we're in the same boat, I think, as Gen Z. And I would imagine that adults... Adults like my parents' age adults. I yeah. guess I'm an adult now. Baby but boomers. I would imagine that they spend less time in face-to-face -face conversation as well. I mean, how could you not? Like, it just doesn't make sense. You have the smartphone in your pocket. It's highly addictive. Everyone knows. It's not only addictive to young people. Like, that's not a thing. Like, addiction is addiction is addiction. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that adults are spending less time face-to-face, -face, less time sleeping and everything the same as right adolescence it only makes sense yeah um and i think that that i don't know i just feel like that's pretty evident yeah that i mean even i i mean yeah i've seen it examples of it in in our own lives like people like our parents generation and older that just are sitting around on their phones just like everybody else mm -hmm. like i don't think it's i don't think they're immune yeah yeah and i would say just from evidence in my own life the times whenever i spend more time mm -hmm. on my phone um 
regardless if it's social media or not, but but yeah. especially if it's social media, are the basically those days I feel much less satisfied mm-hmm. with my life and my day mm-hmm. than if you know I was off of my phone. Right. Actually, so I had a. It's kind of weird. I had a dream last night. And I don't even know what the dream was, but I only remember that in the dream on my phone, I had four apps and Mm -hmm. that's it. It was my phone, text messaging, music, and my camera. And that was the only things that were on my phone. And I woke up and I was like, I think that should be my goal. Like, I don't know why I had, I don't know what my dream was about. I just remember that Mm -hmm. in my dream. And then I was like, I woke up and I was like, I think that that's what I want my phone to be. And then I read this report this morning and it literally, I was like, this is what my phone has to be. It, mm-hmm. <laughs> I got so inspired. And I haven't deleted all of the apps yet because, you know, progress, slow progress. Um, but I did rearrange my whole phone. So any app that I eventually don't want on my phone, I put on the second page so I never see it. And that way, after I don't use it for a certain amount of time, I'll just delete it. Mm-hmm. And call it good. So on my homepage is literally only four apps. And I'm so excited about it. <laughs> and you deleted all social media. I did. I deleted all social medias. And I only have like the weather and those four apps on my home screen. I'm pretty pumped about it. <laughs> yeah. So we did a podcast episode um, called Social Media, I think. Um, I, I think that's just um, the title. And we talked a lot about this um, and specifically talked about um, a book um, called uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, I believe. Um, and th- basically, I the author of that book probably used the exact same data points that seems like that. Yeah, that the uh, um, Global uh, World Happiness Survey also um you know, used because it came to the exact same conclusions. Cause when you look at it on a graph, it's pretty obvious, mm-hmm. um, about just Gen Z, all the, just the rampant levels of depression, suicidal thoughts, yeah. you know, uh, eating disorders, everything, um, just dramatically increases with the increase of screen time, digital media, digital media yeah. consumption. Yeah. Um, and so when talking about mm-hmm. that, um, you know, taking that data, and you know moving in and talking about us as adults yeah um the last paper of yes the study um this is the one that really i just want i could talk about this for hours so it's called addiction and unhappiness in america yeah. and it, it starts with the united states a mass addiction society yeah so i actually started thinking about addiction a couple i don't know two or three years ago And just kind of viewing addiction in a completely different way because I think we're taught that like drug addiction is a thing and alcohol addiction is a thing, but everything else is just kind of like not, you know, like caffeine is a, is a drug, but for some reason we're like cool with it in society. So it's, it's fine to need to have your coffee five times a day. Mm -hmm. Um, and social media is another addiction. I just started looking at addiction completely differently than just the traditional like drug addiction stuff. And I think this paper specifically like does such a good job of talking about that and like what it looks like in America. Mm -hmm. Um, that, it's it's very eye-opening because it talks about not just it does talk about like opioids and drugs and alcohol and social media but also like 
food addictions and I mean, because America is super obese and um, exercise addiction and like just things that you would think aren't necessarily bad, but ha- are addictions in America. And like, why are we so addicted mm-hmm. um, is really fascinating. So addiction in um, the way that this paper defines it is an addiction, generally speaking, is a behavior like substance abuse excessive gambling, or excessive use of digital media, which individuals pursue compulsively in the face of adverse consequences known to the individual. Yeah. So that, you know, obviously can be drugs, you know, or whatever, but it's just an excessive use or excessive consumption of something, um, which individuals pursue compulsively, meaning Mm -hmm. that you it's you are not in control anymore right it controls you uh in and it's you do that even though it has adverse uh, consequences that you know about right i think um like this quote i really liked it said at the outset of this chapter it's worth emphasizing that if the u.s is indeed suffering from an epidemic of addictions the implications are crucial not only for public policy but also for the rethinking of economic science the free market theory taught in our university holds that consumers knows consumers know what's best for them with businesses efficiently and appropriately catering to those desires. The prevalence of addiction suggests a very different picture that individuals may be lured into self-destructive behaviors, notably by businesses keen on boosting sales of their goods and services. Economists, of course, know of such risks, but dramatically underestimate their prevalence and significance, which I think is really fascinating because then it gets into the conversation of addiction to shopping and Mm -hmm. consumerism and advertising and um, everything that our society tells us we need more of, um, that it gets into that. And it talks about like, um, there are several like theories, I guess they have, um, for psychology and neuroscience of addiction. Um, but there's like dopamine related theories, opponent process theories, self-control failure theories, and dual decision system theories, which, yeah, I don't know if we'll talk about all of those, but, um, I thought it was interesting what they said about dopamine related theories, um, because, you know, we talk about that a lot with social media, like uh, the the notifications is like a dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it says for many years, it was thought that dopamine was itself a pleasure neurotransmitter. Now, dopamine is hypothesized to heighten the salience of stimuli, leading to a craving for the addictive substance or activity. So it's just like even changing our view on what dopamine is and does Mm -hmm. um, was really fascinating to me. It says the basic idea is that drug drug taking or addictive behaviors become compulsions to avoid the dysphoria associated with withdrawal. So it's not so much about getting the dopamine hit. It's about avoiding the withdrawal Mm. instead, which is kind of fascinating to think about. Like, oh, I don't get on social media so that I can have a dopamine hit. I get on it so that I don't have to have withdrawal, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating, I think. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but it's just a different way of looking at it. Right. That, yeah. yeah. You already said it, but I think it's worth hearing again um, of just the last line of that that quote that you said, um, that individuals may be lured 
into self-destructive behaviors, Mm -hmm. notably by businesses keen on boosting sales of their goods and services. Totally. And that is America. Mm -hmm. Like all social media is trying to get you to spend more time Mm -hmm. on their app because the more time you spend, the more time they can report to their shareholders that they held your attention. So they're, um, this would be like the, they take all this data and they put it into like the monthly amount of time that people are on their apps and they, that is measured, um, you know, against other apps so that they can know, uh, so shareholders essentially can know whether they're making the right investment or not. Yeah. Um, and so it is in their best interest always to get you to spend more time on mm-hmm. their product then it is in their best interest to care about you as a healthy individual right it, it they, they they don't care they want yeah. you addicted and yeah. they want you to spend time because uh, the addiction is where the money is you right know? and that's not just social media that's literally everything i mean you, right. you apply that to coke wants you to only drink coke right their their enemy isn't even pepsi their enemy is water right they want you to drink soda yes and they will do anything and everything to make that happen. Yeah, um, which and- they they talk about in here. They they use uh, three examples, right? Um, and sugar is one of them. I think um, one of the things I really wanted to point it out point out is um, so they they're talking about what they shorten it to dailies, but it's disability adjusted life years. Um, so like how long you're expected to live, I think, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, But it says, among all 196 countries, the U.S. ranks second overall in dailies lost to all drug use disorders, first in dailies from cocaine use, third in dailies from opioid addiction, and second in dailies from amphetamine use. The U.S. is moderate only for alcohol use disorders, ranking 39th, which is fascinating. Mm Um, These very heavy burdens of substance disorders are matched by the high U.S. rankings on other mental disorders. The U.S. ranks fifth in the world in dailies from anxiety disorders and 11th in the world from depressive disorders. Across all mental disorders, the U.S. ranks fourth. That's insane. Like, those numbers are actually crazy. Like, we are in the the top four we're fourth in the world for all mental disorders mm-hmm. but then also the drug we're second in all drug use disorders the only disorder that we're moderately ranked is alcohol which is actually kind of weird because we've moved on to harder stuff right because because we're we're looking for some things that'll actually mm-hmm. <laughs> help numb the it, it's just like when i read i just got so sad when i read that you know because like what are you supposed to do? This is kind of like, I think maybe the question this chapter is bringing up for me is like, okay, we can see the evidence, you know, that we're an addicted society. Um, and we can also see that the government and businesses want us to be addicted. Um, but like, how do you, and, and the general idea probably is that we turn to drug use and harder things because we're trying to cope with, other you know stress and all of these mental disorders so then like how do you how do you even (laughs) it Mm -hmm. seems kind of like a lose-lose you know like either you're gonna be addicted or you're going to be like massively depressed and there's no other alternative right like 
so it seems. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just looks like when you're looking at this data, you're like, oh my God, it's kind of a lost cause. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that in there, the reason for that is because as we are gathering evidence and as the, you know, one of the papers in this shows, basically screen addiction mm-hmm. is uh, digital media and social media all lead down a path of anxiety, depression, and mm-hmm. other you know mental disorders. And so because we are addicted to those things, which are all social norms, not illegal, right. you know, not looked down upon in any way, and also uh, make us feel that we are actually missing out if we don't do it. Right. And also we are lied to in the fact of how much it actually benefits you. Um, right. It has benefits, but right. it, it, you know, too much of a good thing type. Um, and so basically getting to what you were saying is that you know, either are addicted to the substances mm-hmm. um, or you're depressed. But I think that, you know, could be in just in the fact that we would rather mm-hmm. take a substance right. than just, uh, you know, make the self-control well, um, and it, you know decision and right. not get off of social media except for a certain amount of time a day or at all, you know, depending on your level of um, self-control. Right. And then... Um, you know, limiting the amount of time you spend consuming digital media and increasing the amount of time that you um, spend in face-to-face interaction right. and non-digital media consumption. Right. But it- I also think, you know, you're talking about like we'd rather take a substance. We're taught that mm-hmm. too. You know, you can look at um, if we're we're talking about drug addictions, like pills that you are literally prescribed from doctors. Yeah are highly addictive and they just keep uh, prescribing them to you because they're getting paid for it. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we're taught to just throw a substance over the band, like as a right. bandaid, like we're not. Cause so we're, it's, cause it's we're like corrupted a, by the free market. Cause they even right. talked about that in one of the papers. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like it's all of it is such a, it, it's such a cycle and it like all feeds into each other. And like, it kind of feels like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. if I, how do you fix it? I don't even know. Yeah. Because you, we, you know, I would say whenever it comes to professions and whenever they uh, study trustworthiness in, you know, professions is like a, whenever they say uh, a lawyer, you know, the right. trustworthiness, you know, is, is low. But whenever you say doctor, I would imagine, I don't, you know, have that research in front of me, but a doctor is probably the one of the most trustworthy professions right. that there is, and yet there are so many doctors that are uh, manipulated or bought into um, mm-hmm. the big pharma system. And you know, one of the papers uh, points out that the makers of, of OxyContin they um, not only have been sued multiple times, right, and um, basically. They, it's not about even about being sued. It has been proven Mm -hmm. time and time again that they are using malicious tactics to get, um, to buy doctors, to get doctors to prescribe prescribe and recommend the oxy products, um, that are highly addictive that everyone knows. And they do everything possible to hide the addictive nature of them. Mm -hmm. But because of, you know, corruption in capitalism and the free market, they get away with it. Yeah, because if a doctor tells me you should, this is the prescription that you need, like who's going to be like, mm, I think maybe I should research it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like you, you're supposed to trust like doctors. That's just, you know, 
it's just it's absolutely insane so like everything feeds into each other in some form and it's like you when you look at all of it like laid out on paper like this you're like oh my god mm-hmm. <laughs> how are we ever gonna like not just like I mean, as an individual, I think I'm asking like, okay, how do I fix this in myself, right? But then like as a whole, like is it fixable? Mm-hmm. I don't, it's wild. It was talking about in here, it says, as we have seen, trying to maintain self-esteem and status in a more unequal society can be highly stressful. So it's talking about like the digital media and um, seeing people's lives as better than yours and like trying to keep up with that and stuff like that. It says this experience of stress can lead to an increased desire for anything which makes them feel better, whether alcohol, drugs, eating for comfort, retail therapy, or another crutch. It's a dysfunctional way of coping, of giving yourself a break from the relentlessness of the anxiety so many feel. And so it basically is talking about how like we turn to substances and we're like, we're addicted to multiple things at once Mm -hmm. to help us cope with the addictions of the other things. Right. (laughs) You know? And like- I mean, that's essentially what I I was saying is like your addiction- to digital media right causes you to have an addiction to an antidepressant right because we're we're so overwhelmed and so we're like oh i I have anxiety let me go to the doctor and get an anxiety pill not i'm not saying anything wrong with anxiety medication i don't know you know but like it's just the idea of like we're just like throwing things on top of each other to, to stop the the overwhelming like feelings of anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. and all it's doing is keeping us addicted to literally everything you know i mean i even in my own life on some levels i'm on small levels i'm like i mean the reason i go get a chai every day is is to like soothe something in myself it's Mm -hmm. not because i need it or want it necessarily but it's like it is an addiction you know and like the reason i sit on the couch at night and scroll social media is because because I don't want to think about other things, you know, like, and on just on small, those, there's, those are small tech, you know, like mm-hmm. comparatively, but to think about like America as a whole, like we're all doing that on some level. And like, how do you even start to tackle that? Mm-hmm. It's insane. Yeah. One of the, the paper says the U S is in the midst of epidemics of several addictions, yeah. both substance, substances and behaviors. Yes. Um, and according to um, Sussman's estimates, around half of the population in the U.S. suffers from one or more addictions at any one time. Totally. 50% yeah. of America is addicted to something. Multiple things. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, But I, I don't doubt it at all because... Um, I think one of the more fascinating things that they mention a few times is the addiction to exercise mm-hmm. um, because I'm because of the culture we live in that's telling us to look a certain way, we're exercising for incorrect reasons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything is so backwards. I thought um, this one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the it's under the subject or the section called supernormal stimuli it says the third major hypothesis points to a core design feature of a market economy addictive products boost the bottom line 
Mm-hmm. That's America in one sentence. Addictive products boost the bottom line, yep. <laughs> you know. Um, but it says Americans are being drugged, stimulated, and aroused by the work of advertisers, marketers, app designers, and others who know how to hook people on brands and product lines. This is the part that really fascinated me. If Sigmund Freud is the psychologist who made the unconscious the basis of his theories, it was his nephew, Edward Bernays, the inventor of modern public relations, who preyed on the unconscious to sell goods. Bernays trafficked in behavioral conditioning, for example, famously associating cigarette smoking with sexual allure of the female models who were photographed smoking in public, a dubious first for women. So he made it like super sexy, even though mm-hmm. everyone knows that smoking is so terrible for you. Um, but I thought it was really fascinating talking about Sigmund Freud and then his nephew is the one who sort of like manipulated yeah. his work for marketing. Um, I thought that was kind of fascinating. One uh, thing that I uh, found really fascinating was um, in the theories of, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, you mentioned the dopamine related theories and all that. The one that I think besides the dopamine one that fascinated me the most was the self-control failure theory. Yeah. And uh, the self-control failure theory hypothesized that self-control in general is an, it is an exhaustible resource mm-hmm. and that when the resource is depleted because of stress, exhaustion, and other reasons, the result is short-sighted decisions and impulsivity. In general terms, stress in various sorts leads to depletion, which leads to an, the addictive behavior. I 1,000% relate to that. Like, I I feel like I can do pretty good. Like, I know what's good for me. I know what's bad for me. You know, whatever. But on a day, I mean, I think everybody has felt it. Like, mm-hmm. on a day when just everything gets to you, everything beats you down, at, at the end of the day, you're like, screw it. I'm going to go get a pint of ice cream. Right. We all know what that is. You know what I mean? I think that theory, I don't even care how true it is. It's true. Like, it has some basis <laughs> for fact mm-hmm. because we all know what that's like, I think. Yeah, and you like, you say, um, I, you know, I'm going to work out every day. I'm going to do oh, this. Yeah, and you I know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And as basically, as you use up the self-control, right, you start to slack mm-hmm. in other areas. Or even if it was just in one area, like let's use uh, New Year's resolution for an example, that you say, all right, I want to work out. Mm-hmm. And then every, you know, we've all heard and we all know that by February, February. All, all of those resolutions are pretty much gone because our self-control was depleted by the uh, stresses and anxieties of all the other crap going on in life. Yeah. That, like it doesn't happen. It makes me feel a little bit better about my lack of self-control. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that you were talking about with... Um, the companies, you know, yeah. the addictive America and the addictive behavior and the, the bottom mm-hmm. line and all that. Um, that reminded me of the story in um, The Power of Habit by mm-hmm. Charles Duhigg. Um, he talks about in that book um, a fascinating story of the the product Febreze. Yeah. And how Febreze was essentially a product failure um, because it the way it was marketed, um, it was it was marketed as if something smells, you spray it right it no longer smells but then they found um through research that people go nose blind to things and they actually don't even realize that things um, are smelling because if, if your whole house smells like a pile of cats if you live among that pile of cats mm-hmm. essentially you just completely go nose blind and you don't even realize that it's smelling anymore totally and so whenever they were doing their marketing of 
hey, if your house smells like a pile of cats, spray the Febreze and it won't mm-hmm. smell anymore. And people would be like, doesn't smell. It smells fine. Um, and so <laughs> they basically didn't work. So they figured out a way to hack the habit mm-hmm. of cleaning. And so they started marketing um, through research and blah, 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 blah. Like it's, it's a whole chapter in the book. Um, in the end, they found that when they started marketing it towards um, homemakers to spray at the very end of cleaning. Right. Um, so they do all the vacuuming and the dusting and the pile, you know, picking up everything. And at the very end, you spray the Febreze. You it's smell like the reward. You know, you smell the, the fresh, uh, you know, Febreze scent and you're like, ah, clean. So they hacked the habit of cleaning that at the end of cleaning, you no longer feel that the home is clean unless you spray the Febreze and smell the the freshness, mm-hmm. even though the house is fine, yeah. it is clean, but by having the uh, fresh Febreze scent at the end of cleaning, that is like the mental signifier of like, ah, the cleaning is done. Yeah. And so essentially Febreze is a successful product because it is, um, you know, quote unquote, addictive. Right. In the fact that it has hacked the habit of, of, of that. And now, you know, it, it, to certain people, it is uh, an addictive quality right. uh, of being uh, needing to, you know, use it at the end of cleaning. Yes. Yeah. So just the, the just the whole line that you mentioned about, mm-hmm. you know, companies um, hacking our it's uh, true. brains. It's so true. And it's crazy that like you can know it and still like fall prey to it. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's kind of insane. The very last section is called Failures of Government Regulation. Mm -hmm. It says, in view of the multiple addictive epidemics underway in the U.S. that are contributing to shockingly adverse public health outcomes, obesity rates among the highest in the world, um, rising rates of adolescent depression, um, rising age-adjusted suicide rates uh, since the year 2000, a searing opioid epidemic, and falling overall life expectancy, which is really sad to Mm -hmm. me. Um, one would expect a major public policy response. Yet the shocking truth is that the U.S. public health responses have been small, even insignificant to date. If anything, the epidemics expose the remarkable power of a corporate vested interest in American political life, power that is so great that it has forestalled any effective responses that would jeopardize corporate profits and control. Yeah. Which I think is kind of crazy um and they they give some examples the oxycontin being one mm. about how it is literally the reason for the opioid e- epidemic in America um the beverage indus- industry with the sodas and the sugar and how they literally sued the city of San Francisco Yeah actually can like, I just read that one real quick cuz I think Yeah it's wild This one you know should be implanted in your brain Yeah uh so the beverage industry has strenuously resisted the responsibility or regulation for the obesogenic uh, risks of sugar-based sodas. It has fought relentlessly against sugar taxes aimed to induce consumers to buy less expensive, safer beverages. Um, and when the in one when one city, San Francisco, imposed a mandatory warning on sugar-based beverages, uh, which would say drinking beverages with added sugars. Uh, contributes to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay. This is a message from the city and county of San Francisco. The American Beverage Association and other plaintiffs successfully sued San Francisco in a ruling that epitomizes the alarming state of U.S. public policy. The U.S. Court of Appeals found that the mandatory warning 
was an infringement of commercial free speech under the First Amendment. Which is absolutely insane. It's like they're getting away with not telling us. I mean, obviously, I think most of us know now, right? But like there should be warnings. Like, Well, it's just like in the fact that with smoking, it's like everybody knows that smoking kills you. Right. But there's a difference between knowing that smoking kills you and every single time you buy a pack of cigarettes, the entire side or entire back says, this This will will kill kill you. you. Exactly. Um, And then they, they also used the example of um food industry and obesity and that i thought was interesting that there's um heinz craft has a subsidiary called devour foods um and they used their 2019 2019 Mm -hmm. super bowl ad for as an example and in the ad the young woman declares my boyfriend has an addiction showing her boyfriend gobbling up his food she implies that she tried to lure him away from the food through spiced up sex, but notes of the food, it's hard to resist. And then the ad ends with the message, never just eat, devour. And it's it's literally promoting mm-hmm. overeating and overconsumption. Like, and it it's just kind of crazy. It says the list of corporate recklessness in the US goes on and on, and now especially implicates the tech industry as well, which has played no constructive role to date in addressing the alarming trends of adolescent screen time and the ensuing depressive disorders described um, by Twinge, which was one of the um, resources in this volume. As every major study of Facebook has shown, the company is duplicitous in use of personal data, relentlessly focused on its bottom line, there it is again, and steadfastly dismissive of the dire consequences emanating from the use of its product and services. I think it's just really sad that we live in such an addictive culture and that um, big business and government and whoever is like perpetuating it. Mm -hmm. And it's like I said um, earlier, like I don't, it seems kind of like a lose-lose. I don't really know (laughs) how you, because you think about like, okay, I can delete social media, right? and start there but then you think about your food mm-hmm. and you're like pretty much anything you're buying at the grocery store is going to be way high in sugars and salt and like all kinds of things and like obviously you have um the soda and coffee and whatever addictions and then also you have you know like mm-hmm. the the models and the magazines that are telling you to look a certain way so you're like obsessively exercising and like worrying about eating um healthy things which i think maybe exercising is like i still think whenever i say it as an addiction i'm like it's probably the least (laughs) bad addiction (laughs) you know like if you're gonna have an addiction at least it's like keeping your body healthy Mm -hmm. although i think for the wrong reasons is not okay for me Um, it all comes down to freedom yeah, but it, it's just like you think about it all in relation to like our culture and like how we live. And it's, it just is so overwhelming, you know, and I think really sad. Um, I think but I go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I but I do I love that this report came out that I can look at it like on paper and be like, OK, like it gives kind of like a, a structure for where to begin mm-hmm. for yourself, I think. And like, OK, so these graphs show this specific thing and I can't deny it because (laughs) they have data ranging from 2005 to 2019, you know, like I think it's pretty clear. So like 
now it, it gives you maybe like a, a perimeter to like put um, practices in place for yourself on different subjects, whether it's food or exercise or social media or whatever, mm-hmm. which is helpful. Yeah. I'm actually, it's actually really inspired me on a lot of different um, levels in my life. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that for me, like in, um, I guess one of the things that baffles me or saddens me about our culture is that with some of this stuff, like that, basically like that, the ad uh, mm-hmm. um, from Devour Foods, you yeah. know, it's like it, the whole ad was, uh, you know, treating frozen food as porn, like the, right. like the entire, like every Which scene. It was, it was uh, combining multiple addictions right. for you. It was eat all of the stuff and we're all addicted to sex. So, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like It was basically like, uh, it was alluding to that he was actually addicted to porn. Right. But what he was actually looking at was frozen food pictures. Right. Um, and it was glorifying the addiction in general. Yeah. Um, and I think that it just in, in our everybody's everyday life, just thinking even just about how um, socially acceptable the addiction to caffeine is, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in coffee or soda or whatever, like people not only are just like 100% okay with saying like, I, I, I have to have my morning coffee or, you know, whatever, like, right. you know, I need at least two cups a day or, you know, whatever, like they're okay with saying that. But I feel like a lot of this stuff is also said with a little bit of pride. Oh, totally. I mean, that's, um, uh, well, the coffee is an obvious example, but I, I wrote about that, like, I think in 2014, but it's this idea of like, but first coffee mm-hmm. and like burning the midnight oil the new phrase of that is like, oh, drinking five cups of coffee to pull an all-nighter. Like, Mm -hmm. that's what we do just to work more. But like, I don't know why. It's so wild. I think this isn't to, I I am not saying this to stigmatize anything because, I mean, even I would say in in all um, illegal or I mean, in all legal substances, um, I think that within reason and within um, mm-hmm. moderation, absolutely, like it can be enjoyed. I'm like a it, big believer in moderation. You know, it's like it, it, whether that is having a coffee. Like, there's nothing wrong with having a coffee. No, um, and I was, you know, to the other side of like in states that it's legal, there's nothing wrong with like having marijuana either. Right. But do either one of those things control your life? If yes, then it's a problem. Like that. Right. So. I guess I'll turn that around and I'll say for me, the way that right. the way that I view this stuff is I don't care if I have a coffee as long as I am in control of the coffee and the coffee not in control of me. Right. Um, I'm okay with, you know, having, um, you know, eating what a certain food or whatever it is. Um, I know I the the entire um, thing with with me and my personality is freedom and having right. the freedom of things controlling me, even if it is me controlling my, like, it's not controlling myself. It's more so that it's not other people controlling me. Right. It's society or, uh, you know, corporations, um, substances, all of that stuff. Whenever I look at that thing, you know, all those things, if it is taking control of myself and I am not the one saying yes or no right. to whether or not I'm going to spend time on social media or open my phone, those are the things that I want to 
actively right. find parameters to put around so that I can um, uh, enjoy those things right. um, if I want. Yeah. Um, and, or if I can't, then I just like, um, yeah. you know, I think it, it takes a lot of self-awareness and, uh, and honesty um, because, I mean, if you want to be addicted to something, you will. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it takes a lot of hard work to admit an addiction and then to admit that you're doing something because you're addicted. Right. And then actually not do that thing. Um but I do think that that is the way I agree with that like approach, I guess, is like asking, is it controlling me or am I controlling it? Yeah. And then being honest about that answer is the start of it. Yeah. And I think that that applies to literally everything in, in everything. everything, even your- good things, because kind of like this report is talked a little bit about but it's like too much of a good thing right because it's not it's like you said it's not like getting a cup of coffee is bad mm-hmm. um and it's not i believe like smoking marijuana is bad it's just like too much of a good thing is not a good thing right you know and that's why exercise can become an addiction right exercising why anything really can become you know, an addiction like, one i mean eating food is a necessity of life right but eating too much food Right. Is a problem. Right. Um, or not the, enough. In the same thing with like exercise, it's like exercise is something that we all we should, should be doing. <laughs> yeah. um, but too much of a good thing can become a problem because it's in control of your life. Yes, exactly. So I think, um, yeah, just too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And this whole paper was super eye opening and fascinating. And I has given me. Um, ideas to and parameters to set around my own addictions and bad habits that I'm pretty psyched about. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all of this kind of goes even into the conversation that we had about my existential crisis mm-hmm. and just um, thinking about what is the actual, what actually brings happiness to people Right. What is the actual meaning to our human existence and mm-hmm. what should we actually be focusing on? And I think that this, uh, I think, proves a lot of that or like solidifies a lot of my thinkings right. in that so much of the things that we, um, especially as younger people, tend to focus on and spend all of our time doing and spend all of our time worrying about are ultimately things that not only don't actively add to our happiness but do actively detract from mm-hmm. our happiness mm-hmm. and lead us in you know into unhappiness um versus the you know the first things we talked about you know in that social media paper of face-to-face interactions right and uh, attending religious services um and uh the war the, reading you know, reading and you know but the main ones though were like sleep uh, yeah that was sleep number one yeah see we forgot about sleep (laughs) but sleep number one but then after that face to face like actual social interaction with other human beings Mm -hmm. um in different forms and i think that being just choosing to focus on that versus getting focusing on other you know humans inside of a screen right i think one other thing that they mentioned in that same part is that um they did not study uh, purpose in correlation to happiness, which I thought 
I, I don't know the exact words that mm-hmm. they use, but I thought that was interesting too, that they were like, we cannot, t- we can't say how big of a part purpose plays. Although obviously it's a big part yeah. Um, because they didn't study it. But I just wanted to point that out that like, cause we're talking about happiness and I feel like happiness can kind of be um, shallow a little bit in its definition. Mm-hmm. And what we're actually talking about is like, purpose and like what gives our life meaning Mm -hmm. and not just like what makes us happy you know what i mean um i think that's kind of like the definition of happiness that they're talking about right yeah yeah so um if you want to read the world happiness report you can go to worldhappiness.report um and uh if you don't want to read the whole thing, um, I uh, won't even honestly recommend reading the whole thing um, if it doesn't interest you. But the uh, chapter, what is it, uh, five and seven um, yeah, I think so. on social media and then addiction, both of those well worth the read. Yeah, um, really good. And then I think also chapter two, just about happiness uh, globally. Yeah. Um, great ones. And so as we go about our lives from here, um, having now learned this information yeah for me i it just solidifies that i I need to continue on the path that i'm going of reducing you know keeping uh spending much less time with digital media yeah um and continue to um reduce the amount of time Mm -hmm. you know in in whatever means necessary yeah totally i mean i already cleaned up my phone which i'm (laughs) Actually, I really am psyched about it. I feel like the front page being only like four apps mm-hmm. makes my mind feel so good. I kind of want to go outside sometimes without taking a phone. Yeah, I would love to do that. Seems crazy. Like, I know whoa, it's like we're life like, changing. <laughs> I, I know it's. I, I know you're like, how? How are you going to do it? Yeah, you know, go outside without a phone. What? What? Um, I would like. I think I. The next thing I need to focus on is probably reducing the tv screen time because mm-hmm. even if like i watch a lot of documentaries and stuff like that but it's still a lot of tv time yeah um that i feel like isn't probably that great for me yep well um and my try yeah yeah throw that out there <laughs> uh <laughs> If, um, yeah, so thank you guys for listening to this episode. If you enjoy Deeply Curious, we would love it if you would help us um, by rating and reviewing us on iTunes um, and also by just uh, telling a friend about Deeply Curious, either by face-to-face word-of-mouth um, interaction, wow. um, which may lead you know to a, a notch in your happiness, yeah. um, or you can share us on the dark and evil social media. <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, if you want to help support this show and everything that we do as um, artists, you know, within the show and um, outside of the show, um, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon. And th- that is what we call the Jensen AV Club. Yes. You can go to JensenAV.club and see all of the different uh, tiers of um, how you can get some exclusive content and deeper access to us and our art. Um, thank you everybody who is already involved with the Jensen AV club. And again, this, uh, episode is executive produced by Christian B Schmidt. Um, all right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.